Thank you for listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit our website, centurybaptist.org, or download the Century Baptist Church app. It is so good to get together and worship this morning. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, I don't want to assume that everyone knows me. My name is Ethan Johnson. I'm the executive pastor here at Century, which is a reminder for us. Our lead pastor, Paul Nathan, is on sabbatical now for a while. And so we need to keep praying for him and his family that his tank would be filled up. He promised me he would take it very seriously. He would come back with a full tank because we're going to need it. I was thinking this morning and I said in the first service, uh, he's our starting pitcher. Baseball analogy. He's our starting pitcher. He pitches week in, week out. Occasionally, you need to call in the relief pitcher. And they come in, and they throw fire. They throw hard for like an inning, but then they got to go back to the bullpen. So I was thinking this morning, too, I hope, because sometimes at the end of a game, if it's a blowout, you bring like the first baseman in the pitch. By that time, everybody's gone. No one cares. So I promise that when we come into the bull, out of the bullpen, that we will throw as hard as we can until he gets back. And, uh, and there's several of us that are going to be uh, preaching, and I just hope that I'm a better preacher than I was a pitcher because I was not very good. <laughs> Time will tell. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to continue in the book of Matthew. As you're doing that, I'd like to multitask um, and talk about an app. We have a Century Baptist app now. If you go to Android or Apple, you can download our app. That is a great way that you can connect with us, that you can communicate with us, also that we can communicate with you. I was checking it out uh, earlier this morning. There are ways you can directly live stream the service if you're not here. You can take sermon notes on here and they keep them. They save them on the app for you so you can take them from week to week. There's uh, information about our community life groups, which are starting up this week, and we're going to want to keep aware of that. If you, have more, if you want more information, please let us know about joining a community life group. There's all sorts of things on here, so please take advantage of that app. And then if you do that, you know, let us know what you think. Let us know how that's working for you. So a little plug there as, you're, as we're multitasking, looking into our Bible. Speaking of multitasking, I did a little research into multitasking this week. And I did it because, so a lot of people think that we're good at multitasking. Like we have, so we're so productive now. We can do this, we, can do that. we have devices, we've got all sorts of aids that can help us do more. Well, it turns out multitasking is really not that good. It's really not that profitable. In fact, only 2.5% of people are actually able to multitask effectively. And if you think that you're one of them, you're probably not, honestly. 2.5% is a really small number. So if you're multitasking, it can lead in 40% drop in productivity. It can actually reduce your IQ up to 10%, which I did not know. That's good to know now. Keep that in mind. People who are interrupted or multitasking take 50% longer to accomplish a task and make 50% more mistakes. So each activity, so if the, the more activities you try to multitask, it reduces your productivity by 80%. So it's not good for productivity. It's actually increases stress. It's bad for your brain. It actually damages your brain. It's bad for empathy. It reduces your empathy in your relationship. You're always interrupted. You're annoyed. You lose emotional control. So multitasking maybe isn't all it's cracked up to be. I know these are solid facts because I looked them up on my phone on the internet while I was doing the dishes and listening to a podcast. <laughs> so it's reliable. I just bring this up because Matthew, as we're walking through this, often talks about one 
thing at a time. He'll just take a chunk. But in this, 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 these few passages, he kind of mushes two together, and I've always thought that was interesting. Like he's multi, like Jesus is multitasking, so he's going to show us how Jesus handles this. We're going to read in Matthew 9, starting in verse 18. Would you please stand with me as I read this passage for us? So let's, then let's dig into what Matthew is teaching us here. Matthew 9, starting in verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had, a suffering, who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman's faith was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had gone and had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. You may be seated. So whenever we come to the Bible, whether you're reading it on your own or in church, we look, what does it say, what does it mean, and what are we going to do about it? So first of all, we, see, we know what it says. What in the world does this mean? We have to understand the context of this passage. And when I talk about context in the Bible, I talk about contextual, con, uh, hold on here, concentric contextual circles. It's hard to say. I've got to remember how it works. Context works, works its way out from where you start in concentric circles to the rest of the Bible. So you start with a verse or a passage and you work to that paragraph. Then you look at that, that chapter. Then you expand to the whole book. What is this author saying in this book? You might even go to the whole New Testament to help interpret what that says and then to the whole Bible because it all points to Jesus eventually. But the Bible helps us by giving us context. In this case, the context is the other Gospels. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke being the synoptic Gospels. If you've heard that word, it's, not, it's kind of a big word, but it means you can see them the same. Optic means see, sin means same. So you see them the same. You can line up Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they generally follow the same timeline. They generally include a lot of the same accounts of what Jesus did and what Jesus said. So we call them synoptic. Now, that doesn't mean that John is bad, he's great. It just follows a different pattern. So we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke synoptic. And from the synoptic gospels, we learn that this ruler who comes to Jesus, his name is Jairus. And he's a ruler in the synagogue. He's well-respected. He helped them build the synagogue. He, he's not a priest or a Pharisee. He kind of runs things. So he, people loved him. He did a lot of good things for the local synagogue. So he had a position, but he knew his place because he comes and kneels before Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. He humbles himself before Jesus. Then he says, my daughter's dead, but you can make her live. Now this is staggering because up to this point in Matthew, no one had been raised from the dead. He didn't know this. He saw maybe Jesus heal someone else and then just extrapolated, well, if he has power over sickness, he can heal my daughter. And so he comes with great faith, but not having seen this happen before. He doesn't even know if Jesus can do this. He just trusts him and he asks him, Jesus is always moved by great faith. The centurion in chapter 8, when the centurion came and asked Jesus for some, to heal, the centurion said, you don't even have to come. You just say the word. I understand authority. I have people under me. When I tell them to do something, they do it. You have the authority. And Jesus said, you have great faith. He's always moved by great faith. So 
it says he goes with him. Then in the middle of this, a woman shows up. Now we know from the Synoptic Gospels that this woman was in really bad shape. Matthew tells us she'd been suffering from a discharge of blood for 12 years. That means that instead of just monthly, it was all the time, daily, and she couldn't figure it out. And it was causing great, obviously, stress in her life. She had spent all of her money trying to get healed, trying to find a way to, uh, to take care of this problem. She didn't have any money. She was probably discouraged, certainly was anemic and weak because of the blood loss. But also, she was permanently, ceremonially unclean. When you had the discharge of blood, you were unclean for seven days. But it kept coming, so she was always unclean. Which means, if anyone else touched her, they would be unclean also and have to go through all these rituals. So, probably an outcast. Lonely. Despondent. No hope. And then she commits several no-nos in a row. First of all, she comes in the town, which they probably didn't want her to do. She's in a crowd. Uh Uh-uh. Not a good idea. She goes close to people and she actually touches somebody. I mean, here's a list of infractions. She's making it very difficult on people to stay clean. And she thought, if I just touch his shirt, if I just touch his garment somehow, then I'll be healed. Now this again, there's no record of anyone being healed this way in Matthew so far. So we don't know where she got this idea. A lot of people say, well, she had great faith that Jesus could do this. Probably she had some faith. I mean, at least faith brought her to Jesus. But she had seen so many different people, there's a lot of speculation that she was maybe superstitious. That maybe this was just, she, she went through a certain incantation, did something, and, and if I just touch his garment, then I'll be made well. So whatever brought her there, she was there. And she came and she tried. She touched his garment. When it happened, Jesus doesn't respond as if it's some great inconvenience or interruption. He, can, he responds with compassion and he says, he calls her daughter and he probably looked at her very, very kindly, probably unlike she'd been looked upon by anybody else in a very, very long time. And he healed her. But he also wanted to correct any confusion about the healing. See, and Matthew is, is specific to point this out. He doesn't want us to think that there was some formula, that this woman did something, that she uh, had a technique or it was because of her will. She really, really wanted it, so she went against all of these things she was supposed to do and she, she got that healing. Or if it was just in the fine craftsmanship of Jesus' shirt or perhaps something that she thought was superstitious. Matthew's not going to let her get away with this and Jesus makes it very clear. She acknowledges her faith for sure. But he makes it clear that God is sovereignly in control over her healing because it says, your faith has made you well and she was healed. So faith didn't heal her. God healed her. Jesus healed her, but it wasn't her faith. Faith is not a work. Faith is belief or trust. So faith doesn't heal, but God heals. And he healed her compassionately. So then he continues. He was going to this house, by the way. Okay. And he gets there and there's flutes and People causing a commotion. What's going on here? Well, this is actually how they did funerals. So right away, and they had to do this right away because bodies did not last very long at that time. They didn't have any way to preserve bodies. So if someone died, you got to get right on this funeral planning. They hire musicians, whoever's available. They hire people to be professional mourners. That means they come to the house and they wail and they mourn. They call out the name of the person who died and they make a, it's a big, loud deal. So they were already there. And Jesus says, hey, knock it off. She's not dead, she's sleeping. And they laugh at him. So Jairus says that she's dead. The woman laughed because obviously she's dead and that's why we're here. And Jesus says she's not dead, but she's sleeping. 
So what's going on here? Jesus is actually talking about death as a metaphor of sleeping because he knows it's foreshadowing. He knows it's going to happen. She's not going to stay dead. When the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. Can you imagine this? Sometimes it's good to pause and just close your eyes. How does this play out? There's all this noise, and Jesus just gets rid of all the noise. And he goes into this room, shuts the door, and there's this girl just, she's dead for whatever reason. Matthew would have been there. Jesus doesn't make some great speech. He doesn't call out. He doesn't make a show. He just walks over to her and touches her hand, and she's alive. Isn't that amazing? As soon as, if if anyone touched a corpse, you were also unclean. And they had to go through all these rituals to be clean again. Unless, of course, the corpse doesn't remain a corpse, then you're not unclean. So instead of death defiling Jesus, Jesus defied death. He, display, he displays his absolute supremacy over sickness and death. And he's showing us, once again, how he intends to undo what is broken. And the report of this went through all the whole district. Of course it did. A kid was dead and now she's alive. And so these people, even if they weren't super educated, they all went to Sunday school. They all heard the Old Testament stories. They're thinking, wait a second, Elijah raised the widow's son in 1 Kings 17. Elisha raised the Shunammite woman's son in 2 Kings 4. Children are being raised. What does it say in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi 4? Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. And people are starting to get it. Something is going on here. And so it spread like wildfire. Jesus' miracles were way too many and way too genuine to be denied, and the people were starting to get the extraordinary nature of what was happening. This is a great, great little account. A lot we can learn from it. So what can we, what do we see here? First of all, we see a pattern of discipleship. So verse 19, go back to verse 19. It's not just a throwaway verse. Sometimes in a movie or in a book, they kind of just have to get people from one place to the other place. And Jesus went and his disciples followed. Uh Uh-uh. That's discipleship. That's how Jesus did it. He went, his disciples went with him. They followed him. They watched him. They listened to him. They learned from him. And then several times, Jesus said, okay, you guys go out and do do it. You do what I just did. That's discipleship. That's the pattern Jesus established. Discipleship is following Jesus and walking with someone else who's following Jesus. We've made a big deal, a focus on talking about discipleship over the past seven years. Not every time, we don't have a sermon on discipleship every week, but we talk about it a lot. If you look in the foyer on the wall of the sanctuary, we have these icons in wood and they're up here because these are the eight characteristics of a disciple, what we talk about. So starting on the top left, our identity in Christ. The next one, Imitation, following Jesus, the centrality of the word in everything that we do. The the next one is worship, worshiping God in spirit and truth. Then at the bottom, using our spiritual gifts to honor God, being fluent and understanding the gospel so we can speak it in any circumstance. We love one another in community and love our city and the world. That's how we talk about discipleship. Well, what's the second one up there? It's imitation. It's feet. Because of this, because When Jesus went somewhere, his disciples went with him. That's the first thing. 
you follow Jesus. 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You learn from Jesus. We know Jesus from his word. Specifically in the Gospels, first of all. Then the New Testament talks about all the things that Jesus said and how we apply it. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus and who he is and who he came to be. The whole book talks about Jesus. So we know him and we follow him. So that's it. We follow Jesus. And then also, we follow someone else who's following Jesus. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In Philippians 3, he says, brothers, join me in imitate, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he's saying, you're not meant to be a disciple on your own. You're supposed to surround yourself with other people who are following Jesus. He says, pay attention to them, imitate them, walk in the same way that they're walking. That's why we gather together, not just in church, but in community life groups. We follow Jesus together. And then, the next step is to disciple someone who follows you following Jesus. Meaning you take how you're growing, what you've learned, and you're following Jesus, and you say, you know, I'm not perfect. I do not have all the answers, but I can at least help someone with what I've gone through. I can at least help someone learn what I've learned about Jesus, and you help someone else follow. That's how we set it up. Jesus taught his disciples, and he said, you guys go and do the same thing. Find other people and teach them all that I have commanded you. This is the pattern of discipleship that Jesus established, and we see it in this passage. It's not a program, so we're not going to line up this program and say, if you take this class and this class and this class, you're a disciple. If you read these four books, boom, you're good. No, it's you growing as a disciple, and then you saying, I can help someone with this. And you're not making a disciple of you, We don't want disciples of Ethan walking around this church. We make disciples of Jesus. We follow him together. That's discipleship. So we see a pattern of discipleship. The next thing we see is a provision of faith. So what is the role of faith in healing? Because Jesus showed us faith doesn't heal, God heals. Healings are not produced by the quantity of or the quality or the power of faith. Healings are produced by God and God only. So Jesus did not owe this woman a healing. She didn't come up and he just said, I admire your, your, your boldness and your faith, so here's a healing. That's not how it works. Because we don't even know anything about her faith. If it was all about faith, Matthew would have told us exactly why she came doesn't say. And we think that many people think her faith was polluted with a bunch of superstition and crazy stuff. So she got to Jesus, but we don't know how. So it wasn't her faith, but it was through her faith that she was healed. It wasn't because of it, it was through it. And this is where we talk about God's providence. God's providence is his sovereignty. We believe God is sovereign over all creation. He created it all. He runs it all. He is sovereign. We have to believe that. Otherwise, you have no hope that anything is under control. So he's sovereign, and when he acts, it's his sovereignty in action or providence. So the woman's faith was the God-ordained means for her healing, but the healing was God's alone. Providence is God ordaining the end, what he accomplishes, and the means by which he accomplishes that. That's how the providence works. He works through both, how it gets there and what happens. 
Let me illustrate this. In Proverbs 21, 31, it's a simple verse. The horse is made ready for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Oh, that's nice. That's a nice ring to it. Though, what is it saying here? The victory is the Lord's. He can choose how to win the victory any way he wants, any number of a thousand ways. But he has ordained that the victory that he's talking about is accomplished by the horse being ready, ready for battle. Meaning, the horse, the armor, the soldier, the army, that's how God is winning the battle. It's the means by which he's accomplishing the end. His providence works through the battle to accomplish the victory. This is how it works in salvation. 1 Peter 1. Peter writes, You have been born again through, it's an important word, through the living and abiding word of God, which is the gospel, the good news that was preached to you. How does God save people? He saves them by having someone come and preach the gospel to them. The preaching of the gospel is the means by which he accomplishes the saving. I can't save anyone, but he's ordained that that person being saved is because I come and share with them the gospel, and he does the saving. Paul says we are saved by grace through faith. We're saved by God. We're not saved by faith. We're saved by God through faith, our faith in him. That's the means. Okay, in other words, it's not the amount of faith that matters or the quality, but it's what you put your faith in that matters. Here's the illustration that I use. Until I figure out a better, better one, this is what I'm always going to use. We live in a climate, as we were reminded this morning, where bodies of water freeze in the winter. We know this because guys park their trucks and their little tents and go fishing in the middle of the lake, which is good for them. I love, it's delicious, but no thanks. But when I come upon, when that water is freezing first, and I, can, I don't know how, how deep it is, I don't know how thick that ice is, what matters more in that moment? What I think about the ice or how thick the ice actually is? I could stand there on the side of that shore and say, I know I'm going to walk across. I mean, it's bubbly, I can kind of see, but I know if I step on here, I'm going to cruise right across this lake. And if I take a step, guess what? I'm going to be wet and cold. But if I come up on the ice and it's a foot deep, and I say, I think I can walk on that. And I step, boom. It doesn't matter how much faith I have or what I think about it. It matters how thick the ice is. It doesn't matter how much faith you have. It's what you put your faith in. That's why we have to point our faith in the right direction. And it's trusting and putting our faith in God first, not my faith. This is a deadly trap if we don't get this right. It's deadly because false teachers will try to twist this idea of faith. And they'll try to say, no, God wants you to be healthy and to be comfortable and to be wealthy if you have enough faith. If you don't, no healing, no money, no earthly comfort, no blessing, nothing. Because it's your fault. It's not God's fault. God's great. So they try to get God off the hook. He didn't answer my prayer, but it's not his fault. It's because you didn't have enough faith when you prayed. You see how wicked this is? They take a passage, a beautiful passage like James chapter 1, verse 5. James 1 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. So pray to God. Who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So this is wisdom. He's talking about asking for wisdom. Verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. And they look at this verse and they say, See, no doubting. You can't doubt. 100% perfect faith or you get nothing. Man, that is terrifying. How can you live like that? How can you pray like that? You see how much anxiety this would cause? If I don't have 100% faith all the time, he's not going to answer my prayer. He's not. So what if you have that moment of doubt? Oh, I blew it. What if we're praying as a group? What if we're all praying on Sunday morning? We're praying for someone to be healed and they die. Who was it? Who didn't believe? Who didn't have faith? If you would have, they'd been healed. Wicked. Because that's not even what that verse says. The verse says, let him ask in faith without doubting. It's not talking about doubting your prayer or your faith or how genuinely you feel about it. It's talking about doubting God. You can't doubt God. They twist it. Asking in faith without doubting means you ask God whatever it is. He says, ask him. And you trust him because he's God. So yes, we should pray. He says, pray for people. Pray for illnesses. Pray for God to move. Pray. But pray with faith, not doubting who God is. And if you really have faith in who God is, you'll trust that what he does is for his glory and for our good, even if we don't understand it. That's what not doubting means. We can't twist it to depend upon our faith. That's demoralizing, it's depressing, and it's paralyzing. Matthew helps us with this, realizing that it's not about faith because the woman came and Jesus acknowledged her faith. She had some. But Matthew follows it up with the story of the little girl. She didn't have any faith because she was dead. She wasn't bringing anything to the table and Jesus healed her. That's the point. Jesus didn't just come to make sick people well temporarily. He came to make dead sinners live eternally. That's the point. Which brings us to the purpose of healing. What was the purpose of all these healings? Because Jesus healed many people of many different things. But he didn't heal everybody of everything. So his ministry was not, the purpose was not universal healing. Otherwise, that's what he would have done and that's what he would have taught. He didn't say, go ye therefore into all the world and heal everybody. He said, make disciples and teach them to observe all I've commanded you. So universal healing was not the point. But also, all of Jesus' healings were temporary. They were complete, to be sure. The blind person could actually see. But that doesn't mean that they won't lose their eyesight over time as they get older and eventually die. The lame person could actually walk, but that doesn't mean they couldn't break their arm and they'll still eventually die. That girl who he raised from the dead is really alive, but at some point she's going to die. All this, these healings that Jesus did, as miraculous and as amazing as they were, were temporary. What if 
That's just what Jesus did. Think about this. If he came down and he just healed everybody of everything, headache, toothache. In fact, what if he even went to the entire earth? He just walked until he was done and then he left. Would that have been compassionate or cruel? Because guess what? By the time he healed the last person, the first person probably died in their sin. Lost and condemned forever. So the point of this passage and the point of Jesus' healings was not the healing. It wasn't just temporary physical healing. When Jesus would heal someone sometimes, he would say, now don't go, don't tell anyone about this. Not many people obeyed him, but that's what he said. Why? Because that wasn't the point. He didn't want to, hey, there's this guy who does a great trick. He can heal somebody. His arm was broken, now it's fixed. He didn't want that to be the point. Because how many times after Jesus preached a message did he say, and don't tell anyone? Never. When he was preaching and teaching, it was, go, that's it. That's the story. Go tell him. That was the point. Go back to Lazarus. Lazarus, the raising of his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11. So you, if you remember this, what happens here, Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is one of his best friends. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus says, it doesn't lead to death. And a couple days later, Jesus said, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Let's go. And his disciples are going to say, okay, well, if he just fell asleep, let's go wake him up, if that's no big deal. Jesus responds in John eleven fourteen. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. This wasn't about Lazarus. It wasn't about raising him from the dead. It was that they would believe in Jesus as the one who has the power over sin and death and eventually would beat death by raising himself. All of Jesus' miracles served the greater purpose to validate and magnify his own mission and to fulfill all that the Old Testament said about him through his life and his death and his resurrection and to make a way for people to be truly and permanently healed of their most devastating affliction, sin. His healings were temporary gifts that pointed to the promise of the permanent gift himself. Jesus is the gift. He is the point. He's the healer. He's the savior. He's the treasure. He's the one who can fix what is broken. The great prophet and theologian Sam Gamgee at the end of Lord of the Rings. Spoiler alert, sorry if you haven't seen it. I mean, the book's been out for 70 years, so if you haven't read it by now. He comes to the end. He thinks he's lost so many people and he sees Gandalf, who he thought died in the mines of Moria fighting the Balrog of Morgoth. I've read it a few times. <laughs> and Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What is happening in the world? Yeah. Jesus is going to make everything sad come untrue. He made the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk and the leper cleansed 
and the dead raised so he could show how he really came to make the lost found and the condemned redeemed. That's how he's going to make everything sad come untrue. And that's the real message of his healing. The message he wanted to establish during his earthly ministry so it could be applied to whoever, wherever, whenever, forever. This is the message. This is the point. Not temporary physical healing, permanent healing of our most devastating affliction. So what do we take away from this passage? First of all, follow Jesus. I mean, even what, social media, what, 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 do you, what button do you push on there if you want to pay attention? Follow, right? Everybody wants you to follow them. Follow Jesus. Learn from Jesus, from his word. Follow him by loving people differently and obey him by helping others to see him too. This is discipleship. This is what he commanded us to do. So follow Jesus. And then for our faith, let God be bigger to you every single day. Now I don't mean, God doesn't get bigger. He doesn't actually get bigger, but he can get bigger to you. This morning, I was walking to the hall just as the sun was coming up, just right behind that building over there. And at that moment, God got a little bigger to me again. Let God be bigger to you every single day. That's what's going to grow your faith. Not learning more and praying the right thing and really wanting it. Behold the glory of God. Let him be bigger. As he gets bigger, your faith will be stronger because your faith depends on him. And thirdly, Commit yourself to start thinking. Turn your heart more and more toward things that are eternal and less towards things that are temporary. Jesus talked about this. We're going to get to this so many times. He's just begging us. Stop focusing on things that are going to rust or ruin or break or die. Think about, focus on the things that are going to last forever. That's the most important thing. Don't settle for slot machine Jesus. He's not interested in that at all. You sit down and think, I really am going to win this time. I'm really going to win. Ka-ching! Oh, I must not have believed enough. Maybe if I try again, I get, and what, what happens? You win uh, this, you put it back in. It's nothing. It's, he doesn't want that. He wants so much more for us. Jesus didn't come and die and rise again so we could have a bunch of stuff that's just going to break or die or burn up that we can't take with us. He came to give us something that can't be taken away eternal life. He came to make all the sad things come untrue. Joy with him forever. He came to heal us of the thing that keeps us from him, our sin. And he came to give us the greatest gift in the universe, himself. We think too small about God. We pray too small. We worship too small. Let God be bigger every day. Because he is big, he's mighty, he's sovereign, bigger than we can imagine, and he's worthy. And he wants us to be more and more satisfied with him now and forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this moment, these moments of 
just where we can, where you just get bigger to us, where we see what you do and what you say in your word, and you just grow. And as you grow, our faith grows. Thank you. Thank, and thank you that, thank you that it doesn't all depend upon me. If I don't get, pray just the right thing or believe 100% all the time, I'm weak. I doubt sometimes. But we take great comfort and that it doesn't depend on the size of our faith. If it, why did you say come with a faith like a child or the faith of a mustard seed if it depended on our faith? It depends on you. And the bigger you are, the stronger our faith can be. Help us to walk in that confidence so that when we follow you and help others follow you, when we come upon someone who doesn't even know you, that that just beams from us, that your glory just shines through so there's no denying its reality and its power so we can live faithfully for you wherever you take us. We love you, Jesus. Thank you this morning. In your powerful name we pray.